Very good. Well, good morning. It's great to be together this morning as always. If you do have a Bible, uh, you will need it today. We'll be in Galatians, which you'll need it like every day. There's not Sundays we don't spend time preaching from the Word, but make sure you have your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, uh, please do take a pewback Bible in front of you this morning. Well, we are beginning a new series in the book of Galatians and has been our practice as a church. When we begin a new series, we read through that book. If you are possibly beginning a Bible reading plan, which I encourage you to do, by the way, and you don't have a Bible, take the Bible and the pew back in front of you as your, our gift to you. Uh, as a church family, we would ask that you'd spend time reading that. And studies have shown that the greatest discipline you can practice for transformation and growth in your life is a follower of Jesus Christ is the disciplined daily reading of the Word, that there is nothing else more transformative than that decision to be an intentional reader of the Word of God. And, and on the positive, since we're reading through Galatians today, you'll already have one of the 66 books knocked out, all right? So before the, the year even begins, but I so encourage you, you can search online for Bible reading plans. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of great plans, but the time is to schedule intentional time in the Word of God. And I encourage you, uh, in doing so, uh, there's many great resources you can, you can gather online and look at, but really I encourage you to, to set it like an appointment, just like if you had a meeting with somebody else. Uh, you would put an appointment in your phone, you would treat it like that, treat your Bible reading in that similar way. So in about three to four minutes a day, you could actually read through the whole New Testament in a year. Uh, in about 13 to 15 minutes or so, you'd read through the entire Bible. Uh, if you took if you scheduled to watch one of those terrible Marvel movies just once a week, the, the three hours that it takes to watch one of those, you would be able to work through the entire Bible two times in an entire year. Uh, and so it's not as daunting as we think, but how do you eat the elephant? One bite at a time, right? One bite at a time. Spend time in the Lord's Word, pursuing our King, getting to know Him, and asking that we would be conformed more and more to the image of the Lord. So if you are married, I encourage you, Make this a challenge in a, in a time of bonding as a couple to be reading the Word daily to help hold each other accountable. If you have kids or others, take this as a challenge, roommates, coworkers. This is a good time today and tomorrow before the new year. Hey, to seize the day, uh, send a message of challenge or encouragement. Ask somebody to take that Bible reading challenge with you. But as a church, we are a people committed to the Word of God, devoted to the Word. That's our desire, that we would be a people conformed to the image of Christ as the Spirit uses His God-breathed Word to shape us. And as a church family, that's what we're called to do, to be a people sold out to making disciples at all times and all seasons of life that the Lord would bring us through. In 2019, none of us know what the Lord has in store exactly, but we do know His purposes are to be glorified through a persevering nature of His people that we would trust Him, that we would abide in Him, and we would draw close to Him. And through drawing close and spending time in His Word, He massages into us His image. That's what we desire to do as a church family as we come to this book of Galatians. In the fall, when we read 2 Timothy, we looked at Paul's last letter. And now in the spring, we come to this series in which we'll finish on Easter. And we'll read the final verses on Easter morning preaching and listening and hearing and crying out to God that we would be like Paul, the great disciple maker, who says that he boasts in nothing more than the cross of Christ. That is our cry, 
That may not be what we feel like most days when we're overwhelmed by financial pressures or different experiences of our life. But as the Lord works in us and matures us, every one of us, that our cry at the end of 2019 would be more accurately said, Lord, I thank you that I have boasted in the cross of Christ more than I did at the end of 2018. This is the cry of our lives. If you have children, this is to be the primary prayer for your children. Not simply that they would be happy, but that they would be holy and desiring Christ and to be a disciple maker. This is our prayer for one another because we love each other and we care for one another. So as we come to this letter written some 20 years apart from 2 Timothy, I hope and I pray as we walk through this, we'll see that in our task of fulfilling the ministry that God has given us, there is no other gospel by which it can be satisfied than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news, and this is the good news, that you and I as sinners and rebels against a holy and just and perfect God, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve hell, every one of us. And yet God in his great love for us would send his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, the, the number two of the Trinity, that he would come and take on the fullness of a man that he would fulfill all the demands of the Old Testament scriptures and the law, that he would take upon his sinless body the sin and the judgment and the wrath that we earned. While we were yet sinful, he is sinless, and yet he would lay his life down on the cross, fulfilling all righteousness, so that all who will turn from sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you will be forgiven and you have eternal life as one adopted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this Jesus defeated death and he rose again. And he ascended to heaven and he is coming again someday soon for his bride. And he will come again and he will establish the new heavens and new earth in time. And he will make all things right. But the good news is that regardless of who you are or what you've done, you have hope in Christ you have forgiveness in Christ. This is the gospel and the good news. It's not your resume, but it's the good works of Christ that he's done for us that you can be, listen, declared righteous, declared righteous before God because of what he's done for you on the cross. But if you do not know Christ, then you live by a false gospel and the wrath of God abides on you. And that is not a scare tactic, it's reality. There is no other gospel that will save but the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter, we can read about it in, in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and 14, he comes to Galatia. Galatia is not a city, it's a region. There are several churches located there. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, among others. And as he preaches the gospel to these people, he tells them this exact message I just said to you a moment ago. He preaches the gospel and he goes off. And his heart becomes broken as he hears word that individuals have come onto the scene and said one of kind of two perversions of the gospel. So much so that he's going to call them this pseudodelphoi, this false gospel, this, this pseudo-brothers. They're fake brothers. They add something to the gospel. 
And in order for us to understand a little bit of what we're going to read, I want you, actually in your Bible, real quickly, to look back for just a moment so we can understand where and why their argument might be persuasive. So look back in your Bibles before we go to Galatians and read this letter together. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 14. And then we're going to look at Leviticus right after that. But flip back in your Bibles to the very front to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. So if you didn't know, you have ethnic Hebrew believers, you have Jews, which the majority of the right-of-way first-century church were ethnically Hebrew people. They were Jews who came to Christ. They recognized that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And they placed their faith and trust in Him. But just as the Lord promised, the gospel goes out to the nations, so you have Jews and you have Gentiles. That's non-ethnic Jews. And the Gentiles are beginning to come to faith in Christ. And the question becomes, well, should they have to also obey these Old Testament various rites? And one of them is circumcision. And so look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, because here's what the groups are coming in. Some of the groups are coming in and saying, well, listen, if this Gentile comes to faith in Christ, this non-Jewish person comes to faith in Christ, must they also keep various Old Testament rites that show that they're one of the people of Yahweh? Or are they good to go the way they are? And a homework assignment for you, Acts chapter 15 is a great chapter to read on the Jerusalem Council where this is declared, what the stance is on this. But I want you to read it so you can hear the tension. So Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, it says, the Lord says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Wow. So imagine you're a Gentile. You're somebody that's not familiar with the Old Testament. You didn't grow up hearing this read. And somebody comes into the church and says, listen, Genesis, the Pentateuch, the book of the law, and they read this for you. And you've already heard the gospel. You place your faith and trust in Christ. You assume you're into full fellowship as a believer. And this group comes in and says, well, actually, you're really not. You actually have to be circumcised in order to actually be one with God. So you're not actually right with God. The gospel you believed isn't actually sufficient. You must also do this thing. And here's, I assume, another text they might go to. Look at Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 12. Now we look at the, this Mosaic law. Leviticus chapter 12. We could read more, but we'll just look a couple words there in verse 3. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. Here it is again. So the Lord spoke to Moses, and here we have in verse 3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So again, we see it given to Abram, and now we see it given to Moses. And the argument that they're using is to come in and to threaten the purity of the gospel. They're adding this circumcision to the gospel. And it's causing this church, churches in Galatia, so you have grown men that are in Christ, they know the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then somebody's coming in and adding circumcision to it. They're adding something to the gospel. And what we see, it's been said before, but the gospel plus something equals nothing. The gospel plus something equals nothing. It doesn't make the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, more powerful. It actually does the opposite. It makes it void. 
that truly we are made right with God, not by what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. And as those who have been adopted by faith in Christ, we're to live out that reality. We're free now in Christ to love our neighbor by the Spirit. So I have two scenarios I want you to understand as we walk through this, because you may be thinking, Brent, how does Galatians really apply to me then? Because there's not a lot of people, I assume, in, in Nacogdoches, there's not a lot of a threat of false teachers coming around your door and saying, hey, listen, you need to be circumcised, right? That's not a very good outreach program. Uh, and, and if you don't know what that word is, you can ask your parent when you get home. And so, parents, you're welcome for that, all right? So that's not really threatening to us. But you better believe there is a threat upon the goodness and the truth of the gospel in every generation for all time. Wherever you have the authentic gospel, you will have counterfeits everywhere. They're not only proclaimed through the state, like what we see happening in China, with an increasing persecution against the believers, but in every single culture through peer pressure and pop culture, there is an acceptable gospel that is offended by the true gospel, that will try to spoil it, and it's everywhere. And if we're not vigilant to stand on the true gospel and be a people that are ever looking to Christ, we too can be fooled. And if you've fallen into a false gospel, here's what I want us to understand. Imagine that we are one of the churches in Galatia, perhaps in Antioch, that's receiving this letter. And a portion of us have believed what these false teachers have said that have come up from Jerusalem. That means some of us have gone public, right? We've, some of us have added circumcision to the gospel and now we're public about it. I don't use this statement in a, in a mocking way, but we're out of the closet about it. When I say that, I mean it's a public declaration to say this is who I am and this is what I believe now. So imagine in the church, a portion of us over here have come and said, listen, you must be circumcised. You must do this thing as well to actually be a true believer. Now Paul writes and gets you back to the gospel. He gets you back to the truth of the roots. You all have a choice now. You either have to humble yourself and return to the truth, but what does the flesh usually make us want to do? Double down, right? I'd assume, are any, of you, are any of you, besides me, the type of person, if somebody says you're wrong, you say, uh, no? That's what is going on. Incredible humility, gifted by the Spirit, have to have these people that have made a foolish decision step back two steps in humility and say, we were wrong for the sake of the unity of the body and the goodness and the purity of the gospel. Make no mistake, church, what we stand on and build our lives on will impact the little kids across the street. It will impact our culture that we live in today. We must be willing to pay a cost for the purity of the gospel and the goodness of his word. We must be willing, regardless of the pressures of a culture that's offended, that says there is no other gospel that will save but that by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is an offensive message. But it's the only gospel that will save. It's the only gospel that gives you rest. If you don't know that gospel, come to know that gospel and build your life upon Christ. Abide in Him. He is good and He is true. 
Uh, if you look at Galatians, there's three sections, and we're going to read it exactly in that way. Now, of course, the, the verses were added sometime later, and it makes it helpful for us to find different areas, but generally scholars would agree that Galatians is broken down into three different sections. Chapter 1 and 2, section 1, which I've identified in your bulletin for us as simply the gospel authenticated. So Paul's going to take time and he's going to reestablish the truth of what his credentials are as an apostle. And he's going to say, hey, if anybody, an angel or another apostle teaches you a false gospel, let them be accursed. It's the true gospel is unchanging. The word of God is unchanging. So we have the gospel authenticated. Then we're going to go to chapter 3 and 4. We'll see that the gospel is argued. Chapter 3 and 4 have been akin to a mini book of Romans, like a bite-sized Romans. Little Romans where he anticipates the arguments that are going to be made by the false teachers, and he dismantles them in chapter 3 and 4. What makes it hard for us is it's almost like we're listening in to one side of the phone call. So we're able to hear his responses, but we don't actually get the full detail. We're able to put together a pretty good case to know what the false teaching was, certainly by his remarks. We'll read one of them where it's kind of shocking. And then chapter 5 and 6, he anticipates... And in chapter 2, 19, we get this picture of what it means to be dead to the law, but alive by the Spirit. Dead to the law, free to live to God. Chapter 5 and 6, this fruit of the Spirit, singular, this fruit of the Spirit that is yours if you're a Christian, we're to walk by the Spirit, and this is what our life begins to look like. Chapter 5 and 6, we might say, is the gospel applied. Chapter 5 and 6 is the gospel applied. It's the ethics, it's the morals of the Christian. Even though we're not sitting here saying, oh, here's these laws, here's these laws, now that we've been adopted by faith alone in Christ, we're free now to be able to keep the law, which sounds confusing, but we're doing these things, we're living free by the Spirit, and we end up fulfilling the law in that we are loving our neighbor, which the law is partially summed up as, loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. All right, so we're going to begin reading Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read all the way through chapter 2, and my personal goal is to be able to get through this without stopping anywhere and trying to explain it. I tried, it sounds weird that I've read Galatians out loud a couple times this week, but I have every time been unable to read through it without stopping and trying to explain something by myself in a room, which sounds crazy, okay? But I, so that's my goal, is just to read through it and realize over the next several weeks together as we walk through this book, the applications for us are incredible. The applications in all of our lives, and as a church, believe me, are absolutely incredible. So we're getting an overview right here, and the goodness of the Lord to work through his word, there is richness, even in hearing the word read, like in the days of Ezra. So here we go, Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to read through chapter 2, before we shift to that second portion of the gospel argued. So the gospel authenticated, there's no other gospel, no other gospel. Here we go. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astounded that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Again, imagine you're hearing this for the first time. Imagine where the church gathered in one of these cities. We're hearing this for the first time. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I, was, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous I was for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who has set me apart before I was born, who was called by me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I, I do not lie. And then I went again to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, were only, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Chapter 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, and from those whom seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he was worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the only Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The gospel authenticated. There is no other gospel What we see from the beginning here, I want you to notice what Peter does before we go on to chapter 3 and 4. What we believe will always bleed into what we do. And what we do will bleed into what we believe. When we walk through this book of Galatians, especially by the time we finish chapter 6, it will be ingrained in every one of our minds. Like two arms on the same body. That you cannot take the stance that says, what I believe doesn't matter, it's just how I live. Have you ever heard that in our culture today? It doesn't matter what you believe, just get along with each other. It's all the same. Galatians won't let you say that. Galatians tells that person, you are wrong. That's what the Word of God does. But on the other hand, there's some people that say, how I live, it doesn't matter. It's just that I believe. In this hand also, Galatians doesn't let you say that. It says, if you're holding that, you're wrong. See, here's the picture. There's two hands, but they're on the same body. What we believe matters. The truth of the gospel matters. But as those who are built upon the goodness of the gospel it will bleed through our life. So as Peter is being influenced by the peer pressure of these ones from, from, from Jerusalem, it's impacting how he lives. And that impacting of how he lives is impacting the unity and the fellowship of the local church and their effectiveness in making disciples. This is what we must pull away from this letter. The scriptures won't let us get away with either one of those mistakes without being balanced to understand that you are truly declared righteous with God through faith in Christ alone. It's all part of the same text. There's a teacher named Andy Stanley. I didn't even intend to go on this too far. There's a teacher named Andy Stanley, very popular. He's a great communicator. 
But he's made a statement I horribly disagree with, and if you hold it, I ask you to reconsider it. He has recently, the last few months, begun this series that said that you need to unhitch the gospel. You need to unhitch your Christianity. You need to unhitch, like a trailer hitch, unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. As though to make it easier, Jesus is not someone you try for a 90-day period to see if it works. Jesus is the Lord and King of kings. We only come to him by faith and submission to his lordship and rule. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures are woven together. It'd be like saying, you know what, I'm going to unhitch my torso from my legs. It'd be foolish. This is built upon this. You may have less to worry about if you lose your legs, but that's not how God designed us. And you may try to cut off the Old Testament and not see how the Lord satisfied these things, but you're totally neglecting yourself and you're abusing the Scriptures. Never unhitch yourself from the Word of God. Rather, hitch yourself to the Gospel and see how Christ satisfied the demands of the Old Testament and worship your King who makes you right by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the goodness of Christ. That's your hope. You're truly forgiven. That thing that comes into your mind, what about that? You're truly made right with God because of what Christ has done for you. So go live for Him as His child because you're free to live for Him. You're His. Have you trusted Him as your King? So in chapter 3 and 4, what we're going to read now, we have the gospel argued. The gospel authenticated. Look at all the time he spent justifying his resume of who he is as an apostle. And now in chapter 3 and 4, he makes many arguments going back to the Old Testament, anticipating the false arguments that the Pseudadelphoi, the false brethren, are making in the church. It's like whack-a-mole, chapter 3 and 4. He's just, boom, thud. You ever play that game? All right, sometimes you guys give me looks, and I'm thinking, you have no idea, and I'm starting to realize they're just like pity looks that you give to that uncle and just tell him to move on. Okay, I got it. So you'll notice in chapter 3 and 4, he's answering these boom, 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 and he's showing how Christ really is the completion, the torso to the legs of the Scriptures. So don't go back to the legs. Rest in Christ, chapter 3 and 4. All right, the Gospel argued there's no other justification, there's no other way to be declared righteous before the Lord, but by faith alone. Chapter 3 and 4. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, If you shall, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21, And the law then, contrary to the promises, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father! So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be more once more? 
You observe days and months and season and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Verse 15, What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Verse 21, tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those, than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. The Gospel authenticated, argued, and now applied. Chapter 5 and 6. The gospel applied. Look back to, to chapter 2, verse 19, before we read that. Chapter 2, verse 19. What the Jew, these false teachers are doing is they're saying, look, you really can't follow after God without the law. So keep the law if you want to really follow the Messiah. When he says back in chapter 2, verse 19, for through the law I died to the law. Why? So that I might live to God. What chapter 5 and 6 is, is Paul's explanation for how the believer is to live a life free for God. It's to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer upon their new birth. This is the gift we have. This is the promise we have. That's the context of chapter 5 and 6. It's the gospel applied. There's no other way for a Christian to truly live but by the Spirit. So Paul tells them, go back and anchor down and live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. 
All right, here we go. Chapter 5 and chapter 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, it counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Ah, a little leaven, it leavens the whole lump. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Ouch. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you, do not, or you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Verse 18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Chapter 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows into his own flesh will reap from the flesh and reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you, with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may be persecuted for the cross of Christ, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation And as for all those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. What is my life built upon? What is your marriage built upon? What is your hope built upon? The gospel will endure. Those who build their life upon the gospel, the word of God will endure in a world that is perishing all around us. A world of false brethren. A world of false gospels. The call of Christ and the goodness of the gospel is a call to exchange your authority and accept and submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who declares us righteous, the only one who can truly make us holy. And our next steps as we come into 2019, I think this is an appropriate question for you and for me. How will the belief that there is no other gospel, impact my calling, commitments, and conversations this new year? How will the belief that there is no other gospel impact my calling, my purposes? If you and I truly believe that there is no other person to pledge allegiance to, as we saw these two boys do at the beginning of our service, They declared their allegiance publicly to Jesus Christ above all governments, above all peer pressure, above all the world for the rest of their life. That's what baptism is in that way. It's this public declaration of allegiance to Christ by faith. If we truly believe that there is no other gospel, what must that do to our purpose? There must be more to life than what we're doing if what we're doing is not the purpose of making disciples? What must this belief that there's no other gospel do to our commitments and our responsibilities? Here's what it does. It changes whatever your career is or your course of study, and it makes it a secondary avenue into the primary avenue of making disciples. If you're in the medical field, and by God's grace, you're there to make disciples by God's goodness. 
If you're a student, you're there primarily to make disciples for God's glory. Right? If you're a child, you're there to study in school, elementary school, everything else, to make disciples. If you're retired, you live in your neighborhood to make disciples. Everywhere you go, you and I are called to be making disciples. That must be our purpose if we truly believe there's no other gospel. And likewise, it impacts ultimately our conversations, our relationships. There's no other purpose but to make disciples. As the servers come forward, there's no better way to end 2018 than partake of the Lord's Supper. In Psalm 32, in Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and whose iniquities the Lord remembers no more. The beauty of the Lord's Supper is that that's us. In Romans chapter 4, Paul takes that text that David gives us in Psalm 32, and he applies it to all those who have come to Christ by faith. We are the ones, you heard it in that text, we are the ones who no longer have our transgressions held against us. We are the ones who have our sin covered over. We are the ones, if you've come to Christ, who no longer have your iniquity counted against you. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, there's a time of memorialization, right? There's remembering what the Lord has done for us in his broken body and spilled blood for us, that he's our hope. There's also a time as we look to our life. If you've not committed your life to Christ, this is not for you. Matter of fact, there's a warning in 1 Corinthians 11 to not do so lightly, so there's a time of examination. We examine our hearts and our lives and make sure we're right with the Lord. But we also, in this way, we celebrate as we examine our church fellowship. And it causes us to reach out one for another, to encourage them to follow after the Lord, to restore them if they've fallen, and to pursue them. But thirdly, it's celebration, memorialization, examination, and celebration. It causes us to celebrate because a day will come when we break bread with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, bodily. That day is coming. But until then, we gather together as a family, a family meal, to remember and to realign our identities in the person and work of Jesus Christ, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let me pray for us before we distribute and partake. Lord, you are so good that you would make sinners like us righteous, that you would give us fellowship and that you would invite us to your table. Father, I pray for those that have not committed their life to you publicly. I pray, Lord, as the tray passes before them, that it would be a remembrance that if they will but turn and place their faith and trust in you, they will be welcomed into your family, adopted by faith alone in Christ alone. Lord, for those of us partake, we partake joyfully because we have not earned this, but we are recipients of the perfect grace that's been lavished upon us, grace upon grace. You are the good king. We give you glory in the name of Christ. And all God's people said together, amen.